This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Deep Ones. Foils in your fiction. A painting by Chambers. And Ezekiel Stone Wiggins. I think it's fair to say that our heads are full of ideas for games. Sorry, can't hear you over all these game ideas in my head. If you, cherished listener, are anything like us, you've also got some great ideas for games in your head. But unlike award-winning podcast hosting game designers like us, you may not know what to do next. Atlas Games to the rescue! The White Box, created by Atlas Games and Game Playwright, is a game design workshop in a box. It's got a ton of generic components like meeples, cubes, Dice, tokens, and discs. And it's got a 200-page book of 25 essays about game design and publishing, with topics like refining your design, playtesting, crowdfunding, and how to work a convention. In short, the white box has everything you need to get your game idea out of your head and onto the table. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash thewhitebox. Or follow the link in the show notes. You can get the white box right now everywhere tabletop games are sold. But Ken, here's the rub. I also can't even hear you over these game ideas. The scraping of claws, the gulping of gullets, the sign of the number of experience points that we might earn if we successfully encounter this being indicate that we're once more standing in the this time slimy grotto that is the monster hut. Uh, Ken, I thought uh, we have not remarked sufficiently upon your new book, Hideous Creatures. I cannot but agree with you, Robin. And uh, we talked about it a bit in the Gen Con episode, but uh, it is but a veritable cornucopia of monsters and creatures and and, yeah, it's, and, and it's like a monster hut all on its own, or I guess 31 monster huts. It is, yes. It is it's a hut full of monsters. Uh, so I thought I would uh, use this opportunity to tie our, our huts together, as it were, and talk a little bit about uh, Deep Ones uh, through the lens of their treatment in Hideous Creatures. And I think Deep Ones, first of all, are the closest to a pure Lovecraft monster there is, uh, in that it is their classic uh, creatures from uh, one of the core stories in the uh, canon. Uh, and also they are the most like monsters is that they're, uh, it's not that they are without uh, emotional resonance or cosmic significance, but they're also just big physical threats who come at you and chase you across uh, rooftops. The, the threat of being torn apart uh, is a big part of um, meeting a, uh, a deep one. And they are, uh, specifically uh, out of Lovecraft in a way that, say, ghouls, which are his adaptation of a, a sort of more classic trope, uh, are not. So, Ken, uh, I guess the way to go at this, first of all, is uh, we're trying to find new cool ways to do deep ones, and maybe you could take people through the format that they will find uh, if they pick up hideous creatures and flip to the deep ones section. I mean, the format with the deep ones, as with all of the monsters, is that it begins with a, a discussion of the creature, um, including alternate ways of presenting the creature to a perhaps jaded player group. So in addition to 
the regular good old uh, Gilman looking deep ones, you could describe them through the lens of sharks or orcas or dolphins or snapping turtles or barracudas or alligators, because all of those creatures look different from fish frogs. And so all of them would have different qualities that would come to the forefront. And even if you just describe the deep ones the same as you always do, but you add a chittering uh, speech habit so that every now and again they go, ah, that is enough weird to make the deep ones again be uncanny. And if you've added to that a brown or black uh, color scheme, uh, like a shark, if you've described their rows of teeth, which deep ones are not traditionally described at, or you mentioned that you see the deep one um, uh, bend down to bite its way through the chain link fence to come after you, that indicates that, oh, those are powerful alligator or snapping turtle jaws. Those aren't, you know, the the standard sort of deep ones who would just uh, pull it out of the uh, of the of the gate. So all of those these ways are ways to make you think of looking at the deep ones differently, which of course gets you thinking of the deep ones differently. And then with the deep ones specifically, with most of the monsters, they present some sort of pattern of behavior that I provide a bunch of different contradictory explanations for. In this case, why would deep ones interbreed with humanity? Uh, and I have a bunch of different reasons. Then we have our deep one statistics, which are basically the ones from the rule book. And then variants, if possible. So, so the hybrid deep ones, this is the way that you adapt a normal person statistics to turn them into a deep one. And then a bunch of different abilities that they can have that are actually mechanical abilities in the game, followed by, uh, variations on deep ones, different Cthulhu mythos explanations, many of them contradictory, some of them orthodox, some of them very heterodox, much like the explanations for the gods and titans in the core book. So deep ones, might be uh, Atlanteans, or they might be servitors of Nodens, Lord of the Abyss, or they might be incorporeal telepathic creatures that uh, when they possess a creature, they turn it into a fish frog, as opposed to um, uh, fish frogs that come up out of the ocean. Uh, all kinds of possibilities that Deep Ones might be that you can change up, even if you only use that as an explanation in one adventure, and the other adventures, uh, they're the same old Deep Ones, you've introduced, again, a note of the uncanny, a note of the mysterious that makes the game better. Then we have uh, mythic echoes, because of course, as Lovecraft teaches us, all human folklore and legendary are half understood bits of the Cthulhu mythos. So um, for example, deep ones might be the Akhlut from Eskimo uh, belief. They might be the Kaoren uh, from uh, uh, China, the Kappas, as we all know them and love them from Japan, the evocatively named Kululu from Babylonia, mermaids, uh, the Namos. If you've been a ancient aliens devotee, you know that there are, uh, space alien fish that come and teach us, uh, all of those useful sciences. And of course, good old classical tritons and nereids. Uh, and then for each ability in Trail of Cthulhu, there is a different clue for the deep ones. Then some scenario seeds, generally two or three of them. I think the deep one one might have four or five. And then, uh, a bibliography and finally a big handout, uh, of another scenario that is presented by the amazing Dean Engelhart in, in a form of a letter or a diary or a, or a newspaper clipping or something like that. Uh, so that gives you yet more uh, ways to use deep ones. So by the, by the end of the day, you've got six or seven different variations on the deep ones. You've got a bunch of different explanations. You've got different lenses. You can look at them through both mythically and biologically. You've got a, a five or six scenario seeds possibly, and um, uh, a whole bunch of clues. So the, your deep ones, now you can reuse them over and over and over and over again, ideally without the players going, 
Oh yeah, deep ones. Uh, two points of armor, nine hit points. Let's go. Let's make this happen. That is that is death to horror and uh, kind of death to drama. And with the deep one right up in hideous creatures, you can change that up. Right, because the thing about a Lovecraftian creature, uh, in particular, as opposed to uh, a D and D creature, is that it has to be terrifying. If it's not, uh, if it is just a physical opponent, it is uh, it is lost. It's it's allure unless I guess you are fighting them in uh, Ravenloft or something. Um, and so, uh, how do we uh, make sure? What is the terrifying psychological thing at the root of uh, deep ones? Is it in fact the uh, the possibility that, um, as in uh, Shadows of Rim's mouth, that we do not know ourselves that the, there is a a monster uh, within us? Is that the the motif? that uh, is the uh, resonant emotional thing that has to be in any deep one story or are, or can you uh, swap out the sort of the deep theme um, as it were, uh, as well as uh, the sort of uh, outward appearance of the creatures. I mean, their, their inextricable ties to humanity are, I think the core of the myth. And as you say, it it is, is this contamination within me, but also if, if I eat fish, if I, you know, go to the ocean for a vacation, if I live in a coastal city, am I somehow complicit? Am I part of this ecosystem that I don't know about? Uh, the deep ones basically represent, you know, the ocean. So anything that you project onto the ocean, whether it's sexual desire or paranoia, the deep ones can reflect right back at you. Uh, that's what I think the deep ones sort of deepest core is. And because Lovecraft is Lovecraft, he draws a lot of, um, internal tainting and miscegenation themes out of them. But I think that the question that you could ask yourself is what's the worst thing about the ocean and the deep ones are the answer. Uh, they're, they take the form of the answer or they embody the answer or they do something. So if your biggest worry about the ocean is a tsunami could come and kill me. Great. That's a great deep one invasion setup is that there's a big storm. There's going to be a, a tsunamis coming in. Everyone's battening down their hatches, hiding in their house, isolated. And then you start hearing scratches on the outside of the door when theoretically nothing should be out. Oh, something came aboard with the wave and, and they need, you know, 19 human livers to do their ritual or they need, um, uh, you know, some, some meat because they're hungry. They got dragged up out of the water by this tsunami or, it's part of another plan that you don't know what it is. And your house happens to have been built on a, a 40 million year old stone that the deep ones need for, for some reason, or just need access to. You you don't know what it is that the sea wants. The sea is a font of mysteries. And then the deep ones come, or they may indeed just want to breed with you or collect little Kevin, who was uh, a deep one uh, ch- uh, changeling from way back in the day when you lost track of him at the beach that one time. Yes. We need to talk about deep Kevin. Um, the, right. Uh, another, uh, fear that we have now, uh, surrounding the ocean is that we are killing it. And so if you're doing a modern day scenario, uh, the deep ones can, uh, become the, uh, environmental backlash, the, uh, response, right. uh, to the destruction. So you could do, uh, you know, an oil slick story where, uh, you know, sort of take a little note out of the Godzilla playbook and it's like they were perfectly fine until we changed them through our, uh, destruction of the environment and now they're all coming up bubbly and oily and uh, uh, what you have to do with that scenario as you do with any monster uh, where 
they're kind of justified is to make sure that they're not attacking only people who deserve it, right? So they're not attacking right. just the, uh, just the uh, heads company. of Exxon, uh, but rather just uh, rampaging against ordinary people who don't have control over the destruction of the environment, yet they are uh, being uh, hurt by the, the backlash uh, to it. So if you are taking... Uh, the deep ones, and you have a, a trail of Cthulhu group, and you've got a, a mixed group. You've got a couple of people who are new to Lovecraft, uh, and you've got a couple of old hands. Uh, so you've got uh, a couple of people who, uh, you know, know deep ones inside out. As soon as you uh, have a sort of a claw-shaped footprint in the mud, they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, deep ones, we know how to... And But you've got another couple of players for whom uh, this is all going to be a new and wondrous... How do you uh, strike that tone between uh, a cool variant and uh, hitting the the note head on? I mean, it, a lot of it is going to then depend on the internal meat of the drama. Are the are the new guys to Lovecraft playing characters who are new to Lovecraft? Is everybody playing uh, investigators of the same degree of um, uh, knowledge and skill? Um, where where is it? because if you can just make the fresh meat play fresh meat. That works great. It, you know, you're in a Delta Green team and the two new guys are on and they're like, what's all this about Dagon? And it's like, oh, you have, don't, it's just a bunch of dummies who worship South Pacific gods, right? It's like busting up a tiki bar. No, it's much worse than that. You'll see. And then you, um, uh, as the, uh, keeper or handler can unleash the full brunt of a deep one attack on one of the new guys and add the legitimate, uh, sort of, worry about your character's health to fun role-played terror at what the hell is that? That's not even a thing. Why are you even doing this? And that becomes super exciting and fun um, because you're using that same differential that exists in the gaming group as a differential in the, in the player character group. If you've got everyone playing the same band of jaunty investigators and they've all had the same or no experience of deep ones, then that's when I would say you throw a, one of the changed up deep ones at everybody and even the, the guys who think this is old hat find themselves responding like the new meat, uh, the, the, the newbies and being terrified and saying, I didn't know they could do that honest. Um, and then that becomes a, a good thing. So I would say maybe lean more heavily on the deep ones telepathy, which is something that is not usually used uh, as a threat in a scenario. But if the deep ones are telepathically controlling people or they're, you know, um, uh, uh, sending horrible nightmares into your head and then attacking you, that becomes a, a different thing and a change up that, uh, that even old hands don't expect. I would say start with a new thing that nobody expects. And then when, you know, they've had that fun, then there can be uh, a, a clot of more standard deep ones down on the, on the wharves, um, uh, dragging up the, the, the skin of a Shoggoth or doing whatever vileness that they're there for in the first place. And, and that can be sort of the most, uh, entertaining, twist of all is to simply emphasize something about them that was there all along, but get disregarded, uh, especially in other scenarios that uh, deviate from the main story, because of course, deep ones are intelligent. And as you suggested, they're uh, telepathics. And we uh, quite often use them as sort of the, the thugs of the, the mythos creature horde, uh, and forget the fact that they're uh, uh, smart and know stuff. And uh, so a scenario is sort of built around the idea that the uh, deep ones are using their ability to uh, work with uh, human hybrids who haven't fully manifest yet uh, to do something very intelligent uh, and have a, a master scheme other than just boil out of the water and uh, attack someone who 
notices what's going on in their weird isolated village, that that in and of itself would be a, a huge twist that doesn't, in fact, uh, change anything at all from the original story. Right. And the other thing you could do is to present, you know, the the, the adventure as very much the, the human hybrids are are what's up, and then everyone can have the fun of recognizing, you know, is, are these guys... Is this guy a human hybrid or is he just Steve Buscemi? I, I'm confused. And um, uh, then, you know, they can be piecing that together and then discover that something truly awful is happening. And it's, and it's very much about tracking down humans. And then when the deep one emerges, uh, you can just you can make it a, a much bigger, meaner deep one than they expected and and run it that way. But uh, but yeah, deep ones. Uh, they're also very much wired into a human society a lot of times. And in Delta Green, at least, they're wired not just into um, uh, uh, ramshackle poor fishing towns, but into the most exalted of political uh, uh, lines because of their connection through the exalted circle with the military-industrial complex. So that can give you another possibility. If there's a certain uh, yacht-having uh, senator that you want to implicate, then it becomes sort of all, all the Cthulhu's men uh, going on and you're, and you're going after the, the various scions and servitors of, of this guy, some of whom are just there for, you know, rank political power or even for idealistic political reasons. And some of which are there to advance the cause of Dagon on earth. And, uh, another way to change things up is to switch out the environment. So instead of being on the coast or on an island, uh, there's a, a, a man-made lake in the middle of Nevada where the hybrids have been, uh, growing, new deep one eggs away from the uh, pollution that is affecting the oceans. Or you can, uh, you know, you head to the Antarctic where you expect to find um, shoggoths and uh, wall carvings. And instead there are the Arctic deep ones who, uh, you know, they have an extra layer of blubber, uh, but they're, uh, they're also very unpleasant. And some of them have narwhal horns to spear you with. Exactly. Uh, well, uh, before we get speared with the uh, narwhal horn of the overlong segment, it's time for us to uh, move along and see what waits on the other side of this exciting commercial message. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touched the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? 
the chutter of IBM Selectric keys, the gurgle of mid-price bourbon into a jelly jar glass, tell us that we have once more walked into the paper-stuffed offices where we have learned how to write good, and will do so again. Uh, today in the How to Write Good Offices, we have only well, we got our tinfoil for our conspiracy stories, and we got our fencing foil for our swashbuckling <laughs> stories. But Robin, I think today we're going to talk about a literary foil. What? Yes, that's how we're going to end it today. Um, there's all kinds of different characters that you introduce to become uh, not insulation against conspiracy, but a thing that can be um, bounced off the hero to indicate something about them. And let's talk about those. Shall we? Right. Uh, and so foil uh, is a reflective surface. And so foils as characters are characters who reflect something onto the protagonist. And so I thought we would talk about... Is that really where it comes from? I uh, this, I was told so in uh, <laughs> high school English class. And you, well, were never, you were never ever misled in, in high school. Well, well, Mrs. McGinty would not have lied about that, I'm right. sure. And uh, even if it's wrong, it sounds good. So let's, it does uh, sound good. It, it's e- an easy way to remember an otherwise, I think, difficult term. Um, and so uh, that is exactly the purpose of these characters. And the, so the question is, writing foils, why do you have foil characters in, in your story? What good are they? Should you have them? And then we're going to drill down a bit into the different sorts of foil characters that you can have, because there isn't any one single purpose that these uh, characters have in your narrative. And uh, they can be written like anything that is sort of a, a long-standing structure that goes all the way back to uh, Shakespeare and probably beyond. Uh, you can uh, do it in a fresh way, or you can do it in a kind of a, a rote way that's unsatisfying and, and winds up painting you into a corner. So um, the most obvious form of foil is the sidekick. Uh, and uh, in my book, Beating the Story, in my chapter on supporting characters, I uh, break down the various types of uh, supporting characters that you can have in a uh, sort of a, a protagonist-driven narrative. Um, and the difference between a protagonist-driven story and an ensemble piece is that uh, you do have one sort of central character who you are clearly uh, favoring, and the other characters kind of revolve around them and reflect different sides of uh, either their dramatic conflict, the two poles that they're torn between, or uh, they take a role in the iconic hero's uh, uh, recapitulation of uh, his procedural ethos or the transformational hero's uh, shift from uh, his beginning of his arc to the uh, end of his arc. Um, And sidekicks, I think, fit particularly well with the iconic hero, the uh, hero who uh, repeats over a series of adventures. And uh, they are often like a practical uh, effectuator, someone who goes off and does other things and has a separate list of skills and goes and does the uh, uh, sort of uh, side quests, as it were, uh, while the uh, main uh, character is, is focused on uh, on something else. Or they're just teamed up together and one provides something for the other. So classic examples would be uh, Moonglum in the Elric stories or uh, Archie Goodwin to Nero Wolf. He's the, that's the clearest example uh, of them all because he's literally doing all of the practical effectuating while Nero Wolf uh, hangs around at home uh, being an, an agoraphobe, uh, Gabrielle and Xena. Um, and Doc Savage famously has five, five whole sidekicks, the, the fabulous five. 
Um, and so uh, this is a way of having a, a, another character who can uh, take some of the focus and be cool and interesting and not have a, a lead character who is uh, omnicompetent. Uh, the next category that I would put forward is the companions. And this is a viewpoint character who humanizes the otherwise distant uh, hero. And this, too, is almost always uh, an iconic hero uh, who uh, has repeat adventures. So the the greatest example of this of all time is Dr. Watson, who right. s- sometimes is an effectuator who does things for Holmes. Yeah. But much more often, first of all, he's literally the viewpoint character. He's the narrator. Right, yeah. He's And, and in the same way that Archie Goodwin is the viewpoint character for Nero Wolf, but is treated in the stories much more as a dog's body. Uh, you, Archie, you have to go and interview people because I can't be bothered to do it. Whereas when Holmes gives Watson a little job, nine times out of ten, it's just to distract the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> go be a diversion, Watson. Go be a diversion. And, and any good writer, I think, as we go through these types of foils, can make a good character, a la Dr. Watson, um, any of these type of foils as needed for the course of the story because any human being is more dimensional than just uh, their rote purpose in one scene of one story. Right. So Dr. Watson, if your character only fulfills one of these functions, that is too clear cut. And so that brings us to the, you know, the, the point of finding sort of the structural core of the idea that you're working with in terms of why is this character here is always a starting point, not a limitation, right? You don't want to have a character who is just one of these things, but you do want to know mainly why you have bothered to create this. Yeah, why, why is this person here? Right. And other examples are uh, Sam in Lord of the Rings very much is the person that we see uh, Frodo through, especially as he becomes uh, less and less the uh, grounded, happy character that we know from the beginning and becomes eventually uh, someone who is so alien that he has, has to leave the planet after uh, completing uh, his quest. And as the word suggests, companions, almost every companion of the Doctor fits this as well, right? That they are the human character that we then see the alien uh, Doctor Who from, um, even though, you know, there was a, uh, you know, a, a space bikini warrior at one point. But mostly it's regular folks who uh, make the main character both uh, more sympathetic and allow us to approach that person. We see them through their eyes. And I think Scully is another good example because she is meant to be the voice of the viewer. Hence the repeated Mulder. Are you saying this idiotic thing that lets the viewer have permission to then think that idiotic thing as opposed to be confused or skeptical? Scully's skepticism means you don't have to be skeptical as the viewer. You can say, yeah, he's saying it, Scully. Why didn't you pay attention? You're right. And she is even, I, I would think, you know, and she's not just a sidekick or even just a companion, that she is part of a, a, a sort of a dyad. A There are iconic heroes who also represent two dramatic poles, who represent opposing right. viewpoints. And part of the uh, the fun of that show is that it is a, a true partnership, so that she is... Right. Shooting monsters. And that any of the characters can be written as the other one's foil, depending on any of the two characters. Yes. Written as the other one's foil, depending on the needs of the story or right. the needs of the scene. And, and any buddy cop movie basically uses that formula, right? That each, each is a protagonist and the foil of the other. They're contrasting protagonists, right? He's a cat. She's a dachshund. They solve crimes. Um, this brings us to uh, another form of foil, which is the, the confidant. And, uh, this, 
uh, we're now moving into uh, a character that you often see in uh, allegedly non-genre, I guess, non-fantastical things. The romantic comedy, for example, characters yeah. almost always the leads have a gay the, best friend, right? Um, and uh, in uh, when Harry met Sally, for example, both Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby are foils, they're confidants uh, for the uh, Billy Crystal and the Meg Ryan characters, and uh, they are there uh, if. It is an ill-written uh, part. They're just basically there as sounding boards to allow the uh, lead character to vocalize in a dramatic form what would be uh, something you could just do with interior monologue in uh, written prose and in fiction on the page. And the more formulaic the genre, the more likely this character is kind of there, obviously, as that force. But often they are also pushing the uh, character along their arc. A, a well-written confidant is sort of uh, opposed to uh, the main character in a way that suggests where they ultimately need to move, if they're giving them good advice, of course. Yeah. Um, and so if the rom-com is about somebody who finally needs to uh, loosen up and, and learn to trust again, the confidant is the one urging them to do that. Or uh, sometimes it's uh, the opposite, where the confidant is the form of source of terrible advice uh, that the uh, sometimes the protagonist, to their detriment, uh, uh, agree with and, and go along with. My favorite uh, recent confidant character is LeBron James, playing LeBron James in Trainwreck. Uh, he's very funny in that. Uh, but also Horatio in Hamlet is, you know, your classic uh, sort of confidant character that uh, Hamlet can talk to. He reveals his schemes. Uh, he is a uh, thematically contrasting character in, whereas Hamlet is sort of uh, almost kind of uh, not bipolar, but subject to big mood swings back and forth. Uh, Horatio is very stable, uh, where Hamlet is torn up by uh, grief. Uh, Horatio is the one who uh, is, are you sure this is a good idea, Hamlet? And uh, is thus the one who uh, survives at the end to to tell the tale. So he, in a way, is also an observer character. Uh, you wouldn't quite say that he humanizes Hamlet because Hamlet is... Uh, you know, <laughs> and Hamlet the, is practically the defined uh, human state of decision-making, right? I mean, Right. Um, but he's there uh, as uh, less of an observer and sort of more of, of a witness. Right. He's not Mercutio. Right. And uh, Talk to Hamlet brings us to the uh, final kind of foil, which is the parallel foil, as I call them, which is a character that uh, exists as sort of a contrast uh, to your lead character, but doesn't necessarily interact with them in a sort of a, a duo relationship, that they are not, they're not your pal, they're not the confidant, but they are, uh, have similar traits or they're uh, perhaps a sort of a, a, a angelic or demonic opposites. Or, so uh, Fortinbras in Hamlet is sort of the opposite of Hamlet in every way, uh, but he doesn't uh, uh, significantly interact with Hamlet. He just sort of shows up at the end to be uh, the next leader who hopefully is the opposite of uh, what's been going on at uh, Elsinore. Or, for example, right. in Mad Men, Harry Crane is sort of someone who's on a, a, a parallel path to uh, Don, Draper. uh, Don Draper's in that he is sort of a, a starts out as a nebbish and he also has a kind of a rise to power and dominance, but uh, he becomes an odious creep as opposed to a uh, sort of fascinating, uh, tortured anti-hero. Yeah, and then the parallel foil is very often the villain. The the classic, you know, 
uh, Belloc to Indy. Um, uh, we are very much alike, you and I. Uh, I'm, just, I'm your dark shadow. Uh, this is whenever a character says that, that means the writer thinks that they're foils of each other. And right. when, for example, Hamlet says to Laertes, "I'll be your foil," that's Shakespeare having fun. Right. So, and not only will they fence with foils, but they are each other's foils. And that Laertes is the good son who does what is what he's supposed to. And when someone has your family member murdered, you go stab them. You don't just dither around like a goof. And so. Even though he's the villain structurally, because we are rooting for Hamlet, we want him to win. We recognize that Laertes, in many ways, is Hamlet's moral superior because he's doing what you ought to be doing if a family member is is, is killed through uh, the uh, ambiguous actions of of some uh, Dingleberry. You go, you go, stab him. Right, and this points out that the narrative constructed around a single protagonist will often have multiple parallel foils, uh, a whole bunch of different people who are making similar decisions in an opposite way and pointing out to possible different destinies of the hero because unlike a choose-your-own-adventure book, the hero cannot make every possible choice, but you can shed light on what they're doing by showing other characters who are um, making contrasting uh, choices along the way. And so finally then, the question is, uh, once you have decided to uh, include a foil or a multiple foil characters. I think it is useful to uh, stop and think about all of the, these uh, uh, four particular functions that they can have, uh, look for ways to uh, humanize them and make them seem uh, complex and have other dimensions to them other than simply serving as a sounding board or a dog's body or uh, a contrast, but rather, uh, you know, find ways to fudge that up by making them seem as fully human as, as your leading protagonist without having them go off and take over the narrative and uh, have their own uh, plot lines that distract from the main plot line, because uh, that's when you have to pull a Mercutio on him and have somebody, Martin. somebody stab him. Because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Mercutio is... is a foil to Romeo, uh, but at that point, Romeo is not being much of a, a protagonist yet. Mercutio is the one who sort of spurs him into going from passive to active. So you can't have another super active guy around, and you've got to you got to shank him. Right. And uh, while we're uh, shanking uh, supporting characters who have served their purpose, I think it's uh, time to uh, uh, sort of step aside. As writers, we never want to be arrested for uh, killing off our characters. Right. And step away to, from uh, the heiress, sir. Yes. It's time <laughs> to head to the next hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Brush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Be this podcast's much-needed Horatio alongside such Patreon backers as... Dan O'Hanlon. Carl Schmidt. Ernest Muller. Garrett Fitzgerald. And Hyperlexic. The velvet stanchions and the security guards telling us not to lean too close. You can't lean over that uh, that line on the floor. Uh, tell us that we are in a particularly uh, visual art museum version of the Culture Hut. And uh, this time around, uh, we are uh, talking about a discovery, Ken, that you made tragically too late to include in your uh, annotated uh, King and Yellow book for Arc Dream. It's true I did. And you say discovery as though I was there, you know, uh, uncovering the canvas from some attic. No, what happened was it was literally, it wasn't quite tweeted into my feed, but it was on Twitter. Uh, there is a, I don't say they're a bot, but they're a bot similar account and they just tweet all kind of random thing. And one of the things they tweeted was a link to the art site, the Athenaeum.org. And they said, painting by Robert W. Chambers. And as you may guess, I'd been sort of on the lookout for things about Robert W. Chambers. And I said, ah, ha, ha, there's no painting by Robert W. Chambers. Surely I would have found that out. Cartoon eyes bugged out of your cartoon head. Uh, Exactly so. And so I sent my cartoon eyes to the Athenaeum.org where I saw the picture that will hopefully be uh, on the web page in the show notes, uh, which shows a masked ball. People uh, attending a masked ball. The dominant color is yellow. There's people dressed uh, in Spanish costumes and in bunny ears and all kinds of fun things. And there's a big dance in the center between a woman whose face is hidden from us by her arm and a man whose face is in shadow. They're playing uh, the castanets and doing some sort of fandango. And I said, well, this is just a forgery. You people have been gulled by forgers. Uh, there's no way that something this on the nose could be the only surviving Robert W. Chambers painting. That's yeah, there wouldn't silly. be a, a yellow dress right in a dead-centered uh, drawing your eye. No, no, there certainly wouldn't be that. It, it wouldn't be a, a, a mass ball with a Piero clown looming mysteriously over someone's shoulder. That'd be crazy people talk. But sure enough, here it is. And uh, I went to said Athenaeum website, which does the good Lord's work of putting up free to use, uh, very, very good images of, of great art that they can get a hold of. And it says, uh, this is owned by or, or located in a private collection. It's called Masquerade Ball, attributed to Robert W. Chambers, dated to 1890. And then it's an oil painting on canvas and gives the details. It's about 21 inches wide by 13 inches high. So you can map that out on your head and figure out how big it is, but it's not a gigantic painting by any stretch. The sort of thing you could bump under your arm and wander away from whatever private collection it's in. It sort of has and the look of an oil sketch or something. It, that was, it does. Uh, something that was done fairly rapidly uh, and in a sort of a Degas-y style, which is another indication that why would it be Chambers's, given that Chambers repeatedly disses Degas, and he says that Degas is, you know, it's good enough for people who don't understand art and the common law, and he says that uh, he's the outer limit inside the bounds of sanity, is how he describes him in another uh, piece of dialogue in the novel Eris. Are you so, suggesting, Ken, that lesser talents crap talk people they secretly wish they were? I, I think it might be. I think it might be that if you are a mediocre artist, you might uh, take shots at Degas, but... 
still to take shots at him stylistically and then ape his style no matter how rapidly you painted it seems like kind of a thing. And I, I imagine that in 1890, someone's like, oh, you're so smart, Robert Ch- Chambers. You don't like Degas. Well, that's just because you're jealous. And he says, I'll show you. I'll paint a Degas. Boom. There we go. Um, but still, it, 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 you know, it's, it's effective. It, it, uh, it, it comes together and it was very weird. And I, as I dug into it, I discovered that it had been exhibited, uh, by, uh, the Terra Foundation for American Art located right here in Chicago, just to annoy me even more. It was part of a <laughs> uh, exhibition called Impressionist Giverny, a Colony of Artists, 1885 to 1915. Um, it was mounted in Giverny and San Diego. So the good news is it was never hanging on a wall in Chicago, as far as I know, although I can't rule that out either. And according to the catalog of that uh, exhibition, uh, what, where it appears right there, and you can buy the catalog and, and see it. Chambers signed the guest book of the Hotel Bodhi in 1890. They have the guest books of that hotel in a Philadelphia art archive. And because it was an artist colony and Monet and Pissarro and all kinds of great, uh, artists were there. And so, uh, they have Chambers' signature. He was there between the 4th of August and the 8th of September, and again from the 16th of September to the 30th of October in 1890. And although I think one could probably get kind of a fun question as to why he leaves Giverny before Halloween, uh, there we are. And uh, if you look on the painting, you see that it is inscribed à Madame Baudie, who is the hotelier of the uh, Hotel Baudie, Angelina Ledoyen Baudie. And she was apparently very famous for accepting art in lieu of your bill. <laughs> so there's another <laughs> that, possible that's explanation. That's how you create an artist colony. You have a, it is. a friendly hotelier. Yeah. But she would, you know, um, uh, say, no, no, you'll, when you're famous, you can come back and pay me back. And one certainly hopes the chambers when he was a famous novelist came back and paid her back. But anyway, we do know that either that painting or one like it hung in the hotel Bodhi for the next, uh, 20 years or so, because According to Mildred Giddings Burridge, she uh, wrote a piece called Arts and Artists at Giverny in Hearst's magazine in 1911. And she says, in one corner of the hotel, a gay cafe chantant scene catches the eye and one reads the signature Robert W. Chambers. And then uh, the American Impressionist Abel Warshawski was also in Giverny in 1909 at the Hotel Bodie. And in his memoir, which was not published until after his death, but he wrote it around 1935, he remembers seeing a sketch of a masked party signed by the novelist Robert W. Chambers. So what was drawing people's eye was, that's odd, a best-selling novelist has a painting here, because I think that maybe they didn't remember or didn't ever know that he had been an art student and wanted to be a painter way back when. Right, and of course the his characters are art students, uh, the uh, Yellow King stories are, are set in and around that milieu. And and the painting itself, although, you know, like, you know, a sketch and not an, an undiscovered masterpiece does definitely evoke uh, the style of uh, those stories and could be used uh, as a prop in the uh, Yellow King role playing game as this is a, uh, you know, this is the mass ball that your characters all go to. And, and who is the woman in the yellow dress and why does she exert this fascination and why are we following her down this dark alley? And, uh, oh, we've. We've woken up in this strange place. What has just happened? Uh, so the, the illustration itself has, uh, a sort of a, an evocative feeling to it and a sense of movement and, uh, and, uh, can obviously lend itself, uh, to be, uh, something that you show the players, 
uh, as part of a scene in uh, in the role playing game. So, um, and it is an interesting little footnote as well because famously Chambers uh, originally wanted to be a visual artist, and he became friends with uh, uh, Charles Gibson, the illustrator, who then uh, wound up becoming. Uh, at least as famous as he was, and as an artist rather than as a, a writer of fiction, the way that Chambers did, uh, he's the one who created the the Gibson Girl and sort of defined the fashionable uh, look of upscale American society at the turn of the century. And or even um, of um, not even of upscale American society that the Gibson Girl traditionally, just like the Chambers Girl, whom she was an illustration of a lot of times, was the working class or middle class person who could dress like they were upscale. It was very much the, you know, um, uh, Armani exchange of, uh, of the 1890s. If you don't have to, uh, be, uh, rich. You just have to be beautiful. Yes. And, and have a very, very large intricate hat. Right. Or a, or a, a mass of, of brown or black curls pouring down the back of your neck. Then it won't matter. Uh, but the, but the Gibson girls were, were not, Necessarily, although of course he also drew rich people because he's an artist. Yes, yeah, so a lot of his cartoons, the sort of humor, humorous vignettes, are uh, in that very American way, valorizing and mocking the rich at the same time. Right. In a way that would take a little while. You know, you'd, you'd have to get to P.J. Woodhouse to to uh, see that happening elsewhere. But uh, Americans, uh, you know, one minute uh, they're going to uh, elevate a class of newly moneyed people, and the next one. They're going to uh, mock them as buffoons. Because it's always funny. And also, as always, because it's true. Uh, well, uh, we've gone from uh, uh, describing this uh, piece of art that has uh, come our way from uh, Robert W. Chambers to uh, uh, making fun of rich people, which suggests that we have changed the subject, which in turn suggests that it's time for a new subject. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tyne sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. Once more, we step out into the foggy moor, hearing the cough of the alien big cat, looking at the gray alien looming over us, looking for his kombucha, because we have entered the trackless wastes of the elliptony hut. But these trackless wastes, Robin, I think they may seem a little familiar to you, because basically they're just Ottawa, They look right? a lot like our nation's capital, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> and trackless wastes they are. And trackless wastes they are, because we're in Ottawa, in the elliptony hut, looking for <laughs> possibly one of the 
I don't know if he's the most Canadian because all Canadians are the most Canadian in their own way. That's why I love them so much. But he's very Canadian yeah. because he's a government civil servant <laughs> in the uh, uh, finance department who is a pioneering educator who is also very concerned about weather. <laughs> yes, his, he 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 does grab for the number. If if all Canadians got to pick a superpower. As a nation, all of us would pick weather control. And then we go, right. oh, we're all weather wizards? Oh, we should oh dear. Now Aquaman can kill us all. Yes. But this is not Aquaman. This is Ezekiel Stone Wiggins, or maybe he's Ezekiel. I don't know how I you say Ezekiel, it. Ezekiel, probably. Ottawa. Yes. But uh, Ezekiel Stone Wiggins, also known as the Ottawa Prophet. And this comes uh, to us courtesy of Patreon backers, the Dice Geeks, who... For reasons known only themselves, possibly they're worried about uh, mysterious electrical snow. They want to hear about him, and we're here to help. Right. So, Robin, you're in charge of yes, things. So I, Canadian. I felt obligated to do research this time as, as, right. the, as the native son. So he was uh, uh, born in New Brunswick. His fame comes uh, at the time of Confederation uh, and uh, on into the uh, turn of the century. Uh, so he's a, a peripatetic Canadian. Uh, and uh, if you see the uh, pictures of him, he sported a, a fine fur collar and an exemplary waxed mustache. So uh, this is uh, this is no ordinary uh, uh, crank. He's a, a quite a stylish looking. He's crank. a dapper crank. Yes, but he, a crank he is, and uh, uh, like many cranks, he is also a, a multi crank. He's got uh, his uh, fingers in all sorts of uh, uh, pies. Some of them straightforward. Um, and some of them loopy. So he is an educator. He's a medical doctor, as you suggest. He winds up, uh, in the finance department in Ottawa, uh, hired, uh, by the, uh, administration of, uh, our uh, founding prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. And he, uh, did some normal stuff. He, uh, during his education career, he wrote a grammar textbook, for example. He also wrote a local uh, history, uh, but, that is not what earns you a spot in the Lipany Hot Candy. It is not. No. Even if you refute universalism. Right. That yes. may earn you a spot in the Theology Hut, but not the Lipany Hut. Yeah. So in, in 1867, when Canada is coming together as a nation, he is writing a definitive refutation of universalism. Uh, because we all know that the way to get people to abandon their religious beliefs is to write a book definitively telling them they're wrong. And that always works. Exactly. People abandon those beliefs and they accept your beliefs. That's how that works. Uh, before we get to the, the weather wizardry, he was an early cryptozoologist. In particular, he believed that a plesiosaur lived in Rice Lake near Peterborough, Ontario, which is like a, a two hour drive for me. So uh, someone could come and pick me up and take me two hours and I could go look at a plesiosaur, uh, that is, if Ezekiel Stone Wiggins uh, is correct about that. And if it has survived since 1876. Well, you know, when two plesiosaurs really love each other, Ken, right. they get together. Well, he didn't say there were two plesiosaurs in Rice Lake, I point out. Yes. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> so you're indicting Ezekiel Stone Wiggins as being innumerate, which is not why we're here. We're here to indict him for being crazy. Yes. Um <laughs> So, uh, before he was made a civil servant, he unsuccessfully ran for a member of parliament and then he was relegated to the civil service. And during this time, he started to theorize about, uh, the, see, he was no ordinary predictor of the weather. Uh, he no. had a hardcore scientific theory behind that. And like Copernicus, he developed his scientific theories by making them up without observation. 
unlike Copernicus, he was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> he guessed incorrectly. Um, yes. But other than that, totally like Copernicus. Um, Very similar. Yes. Very similar to Copernicus. So his theory is that uh, planetary motion, uh, including the motion of invisible planets, uh, is what uh, causes weather and earthquakes uh, on Earth. And so uh, he uh, wrote all about this in uh, Wiggins Storm Herald with Almanac, uh, and published it in 1883, and it included, uh, as best-selling uh, weather prediction almanacs uh, do, a bunch of not just predictions, Ken, but dire predictions. The best kind of predictions. Yes. And also, uh, fun runners will point out that if you predict enough weather, some of that weather will happen. Especially if you just predict bad weather in Canada. Right. Um, well, his bad weather, he predicted, uh, his hit... Uh, was that he predicted a, a severe Atlantic gale in February 1883, and one happened. Yeah, there you go. Who knew weather in February would be bad? Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> What but, are the odds? But he knew about that. He wasn't just guessing, Ken. He knew about the invisible planets causing them. So Right, and, and the secret moons. Right. Don't, don't forget the secret moons. He also likewise predicted an 1884 earthquake, and because those... Uh, the, uh, the Atlantic Gale anyway seemed to have happened and this book sold enough copies. People started to believe that maybe there was something to this eminently scientific, uh, warning, uh, in the Storm Herald. And so, uh, he, uh, predicted not just regular bad weather for March of 1883, but apocalyptically bad weather. A, basically a world wave series of tidal waves that would, uh, uh lash the world and would, uh, knock down anything smaller than a schooner, basically. And so... Uh, smaller than a Cunard liner. Uh, oh, bigger than a Cunard liner. So that's yeah. that's even bigger. So, of course, if you had um, mere fishing boats uh, and uh, you knew that this storm was coming because it said so in the Almanac, you uh, stayed ashore, and after a while, uh, the uh, Maritimes fishermen started to become irked, uh, unamused even, because... <laughs> No such storm occurred, and they lost a lot of money because they lost that fishing time. And uh, and so it wasn't as if he was going unchallenged. Uh, lots and his fame, uh, you know, exceeded uh, Canada. Uh, people in the states were also quite concerned about his predictions. And so the uh, the U.S. Chief Signal Officer, Brigadier General William Babcock Hazen, which is if I did not have a name. For a chief signal officer, I'd be proud to have come up with that one. His comment on uh, Wiggins was, Such statements fill lunatic asylums, and those who make them are enemies of society. Uh, but that didn't stop him from predicting uh, after uh, there was an earthquake in Charleston in 1886. And after that happened, he predicted an even worse, more devastating, again, apocalyptic-style earthquake uh, to the point where believers in his prediction, like, headed for the hills, uh, wearing, uh, quote, ascension robes. Which is the best kind of robes. Yeah, the best kind of r- robes. And, uh, I, I guess I'm sort of picturing long, white, flowy yeah, robes. Yeah, that's what they that are. Has... It's the, it's, it's, it's what you would want to be seen in in heaven. Yes. So if you imagine your mom saying, don't wear raggedy underwear, it's that, only God, not the, uh, ambulance text that she's right. worried about. Uh, Mark Twain also got in on the kicking uh, Wiggins uh, fun, uh, saying, 
that uh, making his own prediction of a secret meteor, saying that as a meteor approaches Canada, it will make a majestic downward swoop in the direction of Ottawa, affording a spectacle resembling a million inverted rainbows woven together. It will take the prophet Wiggins right in the seat of his inspiration and lift him straight up into the backyard of the planet Mars, leave him permanently there in an inconceivably mashed and unpleasant condition. You know, uh, that that, that sounds like uh, like what Mark Twain would say. Absolutely. Um, And what he's alluding to there, I think, is the most plot-hook-centric, if not the most eccentric, of uh, Wiggins' uh, claims, uh, which was in 1897 he claimed that a meteorite containing hieroglyphs from Mars had landed on the Earth, propelled uh, to our planet by electric force, and that this was not the first time that this had happened, that this was the Martians' way of communicating with us. Um, However, uh, somehow he was unable to produce the meteorite, uh, which uh, I guess is the uh, Martian meteorite equivalent of a a missed call. I mean, it it was probably taken away. Yeah, I'm sure the... Canadian Department of uh, Alien Hieroglyphics uh, went and got it. Well, it, it fell in New York, though. The, the meteorite fell in New York. And so if the Canadians are creeping across national boundaries still in our meteorites, why, Robin? That's them's fighting words. <laughs> well, you fighting know, hieroglyphics. Uh, sometimes you guys can't be trusted with weird news. Among his <laughs> other uh, interesting statements, uh, he uh, thought that disease was also uh, astronomical in, in origin. For example, there was a... Uh, a yellow fever outbreak that was uh, the fault of uh, uh, the planets, of the planetary motion. He uh, blamed Jupiter for a 1904 uh, cold snap. And uh, among his other uh, oddball beliefs was that the, the sun was a heatless electric light. Uh, and, uh, in fact, uh, the sun did not light up most of the solar system. That That's crazy talk. Why would you think that? And, obviously, the closer planets get to the sun, the colder they are because the sun is cold, as we can tell from... Well, I'm not sure what we can tell that from. Uh, from the fact that light bulbs aren't hot. I mean, touch a light bulb yeah. sometime. Oh, no, it's very hot. <laughs> I'm All right. Yeah, well... It, I don't know what we can tell The sun is from. a more advanced electric light than... Uh, but at any rate... Than near um, Edison light. Yeah. And he began to explain his mispredictions uh, by saying that, uh, well, in fact, uh, this uh, is because of the action of Earth's second moon, which he discovered in 1882. Earth's dark moon. Earth's dark moon. Um, and uh, it had been covered up by fun ruiners. Uh, and now, an, an unkind soul, perhaps even Mark Twain himself, might ask, if you discovered the dark moon and knew that it was interfering with your predictions, why didn't you predict right? Uh, but that would make you, I, I think, a, a, a churl. Yeah, that's not the, the the peace, order, and good government that one comes to demand yes, from one's someone, discussion of weather prediction. mustache would say, I would, right. I would think. He was also an early science fiction writer. In 1891, he wrote a science fiction novel called Jack Suhard, or Life on Jupiter, uh, and uh, one of the main features of that, apparently, uh, is that he predicted there would be a giant television screen in every town square. And uh, After only 20 million years. Yeah. Uh, and we could say that that uh, came true, except he said it was going to happen on Jupiter. So And be giant. And be giant. Well, I, if yeah. I go down to the Young and Dundas Square, there's some giant TVs down there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's a giant TV in, in Times Square. Yeah. Sure. We'll give him a half credit for that. Right. So I, I guess the, the thing that we can ask is, Besides mocking Canadians gently, which is its own good fun, is there something that we can do with Ezekiel Stone Wiggins? Obviously, there's that meteorite 
full of hieroglyphs that the Canadians stole from us. Uh, is there more to that? Uh, there, is the Dark Moon the electrical universe? I, I think the the meteorite is the the most compelling thing, um, and so uh, you can either have a modern day scenario where another meteorite full of hieroglyphics lands, uh, and that now seems uh, particularly odd or mysterious, given that we've sent rovers to Mars, and it's like, oh, well, you know, is there in fact a Martian civilization? Did have they been interfering with the cameras on the rovers? Uh, where do we find the original hieroglyphs, which presumably have the key? Because uh, otherwise, these things are all about stuff that's going on up in the solar system, and there's not much for us to interact with. Um, there's the possibility of sort of a worldwide disaster. You could have, uh, you know, an alternate reality disaster movie where the tsunami that he p- predicted actually happens, and uh, you have a, a post-apocalyptic turn-of-the-century world uh, that has been flooded. Uh, but again, that uh, seems pretty obscure and uh, several degrees away from anything anybody would recognize. So I'd say it's, it's basically the meteorite, unless we can somehow get a plot hook from his wife's main uh, political agenda, which was she was a campaigner for the right to marry your dead wife's sister. And sure. uh, we all know that love will find a way. And uh, and now it's just perfectly ordinary to marry your dead wife's sister. I found it in Canada, thanks to her tireless crusading on that topic. I mean, do you ever do you ever think that um, uh, Ezekiel Stone Wiggins and Mrs. Wiggins are sitting there at the dinner table, and she wants to talk about marrying your dead wife's sister, and he wants to talk about electrical comet weather, and then they just sort of roll their eyes and and pass the butter cake, and then go off on their own. Is this a ships that pass in the night, yes. or are these and, and two great tastes enough, that taste great together? Her position was the one that was sufficiently controversial that she had to write under a pseudonym. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote, she wrote under the name Gunhilda, whereas he quite happily uh, put forward the name of uh, Ezekiel Stone Wiggins. Uh, and uh, so anyway, his uh, the house that they lived in in Ottawa uh, is called Arbor House, and it was declared a heritage site in 1994. So you can uh, go and visit it and uh, maybe uh, dig for meteorites or gain weather powers. Yeah, who can say? All of his uh, calculations are probably buried there under the under the floorboards. And so if you need to discover why a conjuries of telegraph wires causes a tornado, there you go. That's where you can do it. And uh, he uh, his career starts soon enough, Ken, that we can put him in the, the mid-19th century uh, historical superheroes game uh, that we talk about. Exactly. Uh, and would sell four copies of if we actually produced and his and his meteorite falls in the burned over district in Binghamton exactly so yeah there's there's definitely something there that the fun ruiners uh, don't want us to know about but but now I think we can proudly say that our listeners uh, know all about it and so next time there's a yellow fever outbreak or a weird weird meteorite you uh, you know what happened folks right you know it Um, and anyway before we get hit by weird meteorite it's time for us to uh, bid you all farewell and we'll be back a mere week from today Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com slash Robin. Protect this podcast from yellow fever by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... John Buckley. Drew Clary. Urs Blumentritt. Jacques de Villiers. And Nate Merritt. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch. 
at tpublic.com slash user slash kenrobin. Check out our latest, most on-brand design gaming hut. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>